Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Out of the Question podcast. I'm Andrea Schwartz and I am joined by my co-host Steve Macias. Hello, Steve. Hey there, Andrea. Good to be with you. Well, in continuing our theme of taking a look at what things maybe we take for granted or don't necessarily come up with great answers for, the question that I'd like to get behind today is, if the civil government didn't provide welfare, what would happen to the poor? In our day-to-day, we have shutdowns because of the closures of businesses. There are a lot of people who are going to be out of work and without incomes. If the civil government doesn't give them the money, how are they going to survive? The question here behind this is, does God have a solution for poverty? Or does God have a way of taking care of people who are starving? Or does God's system fit into the the needs of hungry people? And I think when we ask this question, what we're really recognizing is that when crisis hits, and as we see today, crisis is certainly amongst us, that the solutions and the band-aids that we've put uh, on our culture today uh, begin to show for what they are, that they really were just band-aids operating on top of a big mountain of a problem. When we talk about welfare, I think uh, you're going to have some examples for us, but when we talk about welfare, what we're really asking is, what is my responsibility to the poor amongst us? And how much of that responsibility is coming out of my pocketbook or out of my tax bracket or out of my church? And how much of it should be taken care of by other people? And as we get into this question it's important to recognize that God does have a solution for the poor among us, and Christ spoke directly to those problems. Right. He said the poor will always be among you. Now, does that mean that God is mean and some people he you know, decides is going to be rich and other people are going to be poor? Well, maybe in the grand scheme of things, we could say that's true. But even if you are not among the poor, it doesn't absolve you of God-given responsibility of helping widows and orphans in their distress. So part of the problem we have in thinking that if the civil government doesn't do it, it won't get done, is because we have lost the other fundamental and primary spheres that in God's economy are supposed to be operating. So even today, even today, the primary welfare agency is not the civil government. The primary welfare agency is the family, the family taking care of its own, its own immediate, its extended, and then, of course, the family of God. So if we actually think that most welfare is being taken care of by the state, we're wrong. That's right. I mean, practically speaking, people might wonder, how can you say that? But for the majority of folks, even though there is hunger amongst us, majority of people under the age of 20 years old are getting three square meals from their parents. The parents are providing 
the lunch. The parents are providing clothes. The parents are providing housing. And for the most, for most of our uh, folks throughout the nation, the parents are footing in some way the bill for education, the bill for recreation. And so the family, even in a time when the state has put its finger into a lot of pies, still depends on the family to continue to provide uh, for those social needs. And that's even in the face of an inflated currency, making it so that sometimes both parents have to work. Oftentimes it's the grandparents or the older brothers or sisters or aunts or uncles that are basically providing the help while the parents go to work. So because it's not highlighted and because it's not newsworthy, people assume it's not happening. That's right. And there is a huge emphasis every election cycle and every public policy debate about you know, caring for the less fortunate uh, or providing a, a, what they call a social safety net. Uh, the government has encroached in upon this role of the family and under the guise, and I would say under the false guise of protecting the family or helping the family, has gradually snuck in as a serpent in the garden and has tried to undermine the authority and the strength of the family with these ruses of social safety nets. You can see it certainly in education. The family used to have choice and power and authority over what their child was taught. But the second that we handed over grant dollars, tax dollars, our students over to the state education, now parents have to fight for that authority back. You know, 100 years ago, it would have been unheard of for a teacher to teach transgenderism or to teach evolution. Uh, These type of ideas would not only have been foreign, they would have been intolerable. If somebody came forward and, and started teaching these things, the parents would have the authority to say, We're not going to go to that school. We're not going to fund that school. The church is going to close down that school. But in allowing these quote unquote safety nets come in and little by little chip away at the family's authority, we have abdicated our true power in establishing godly families. And humanism's cornerstone is basically saying the state can do it better than anyone else. And I remember when I first started reading Rush Juni's material, he would talk about humanism collapsing. And I'd say, collapsing? It doesn't seem like it's collapsing. Well, look around you people, because it's collapsing. We have officials putting people in jail, not because they won't work, but because they want to work. We have people basically deciding that we say it's unhealthy for you to interact with other people And we're going to say you shouldn't be meeting with other people, especially in your church. You see, this is the collapse of humanism because it's an obvious overreach. And even though a lot of people don't know what the better alternative is, they know this is not right. And, you know, part and parcel with this, when we discuss humanism, uh, is what we see here today. The option before us is very clear. When our ability to work, to provide for our families, to control our God-given rights, to work, to, to travel, to do all these things, whether or not the state is wrong or right in whether it's healthy or unhealthy, the restriction or the power to restrict these freedoms 
has been abdicated by our generation. And what's happened in its place, what we've allowed to happen, is we have turned over our future to those who have no concern for our future. And so now today, as we're here in my county, sheltered in place, we are told to stand in line and to accept a government stimulus. Now, for some people, the stimulus helped them. And for some people, this was a bonus on top of their regular take-home pay or a bonus on top of unemployment. But for the vast majority of us, the stimulus was nothing compared to what we would typically make if we were allowed our God-given talents to the plow. And so what we get to see in times of crisis like this is that what the, the state or the humanists offer is always uh, this scarce, small, <laughs> underhanded package compared to what God had promised in his word. You know, we had the opportunity in education to give our kids the best, to give them a Bible education. And we piece by piece sacrificed it to now we have common core, terrible education. In commerce, we had the opportunity to apply God's law here to work and to plow, yet we've abdicated our authority to the state. And so we get piecemeal back. The problem really is that when we abdicate our rights, our claims, our authority to the state, they do not manage it as well as you would for yourself. There's a, a great quote by Ronald Reagan who talks about the difference between conservatives and liberals is that the, the liberal believes he knows how to manage your household income better than you do, where the conservative says that I can budget my family's money better. And that's really the type of localism that is intended in the scripture when we talk about the poor. Now, uh, Andrew, what I want to talk about today is really the biblical principle of charity as is found in the Levitical law. We can see in the Bible that God always has a concern for the poor. In fact, God always has a concern for the oppressed. But the way that he does it, the way that he expresses his love is never as, you know, big daddy government. In fact, what God does is instead of seeing the poor as a victim of his circumstances, God always gives, gives the poor the opportunity to build himself up. So in the book of Leviticus, that one that we try to skip every time we do a Bible study, uh, book of Leviticus chapter 19, God introduces the concept of gleaning. And he gives a principle of God's provision coming from the creation that God gave us. Now, Andrea, have you seen these pictures uh, this last week, a week before, of the thousands of gallons of milk, uh, the, the smashed eggs, the food that's set out to rot? Yes, yes. And it's because the bureaucracy even if it was well-intentioned, didn't know how to get the product to the people who would want it. Right. And I'm sure as you see those pictures uh, of eggs being crushed or, or potatoes being sewed back into the ground, you had the same thought that I did of, you know, if only we could get those to the people who are actually hungry, right? If only we could get a truck over there and get some for the people who are starving. But as we've discussed before on this podcast, that the world today produces enough food to feed everybody on the planet. There's enough food produced by farms, 
by dairies, <laughs> by our industry today, that everybody could have enough food to go around. In fact, we produce a surplus today for the amount of people that exist. All the billions of people that exist, there is enough food to go around. And think about it, it's not uncommon knowledge that oftentimes farmers are compensated for not producing land that could be productive. Right, with subsidies or right. um, they're told to, to they want to artificially increase the value of milk or of some type of crop to compete with international crops or whatever. So they'll pay farmers to leave the land fallow for a season so that they can artificially suppress or depress <laughs> the, right. the price of a crop. But that's, that's an interesting part because what you mentioned, this idea of bureaucracy, is really the issue. Uh, whether it's through war uh, or through mismanagement or government bureaucracy, those are the sources of scarcity in our world today. The reason the poor are hungry, the reason the poor are naked, the reason the poor are not getting the income they deserve have nothing to do with there being not enough. The Lord has given us the earth and there is enough to go around. The problem is when we abdicate out of God's spheres and we give the authority to the fam of the family, of the church, of the state, all to the government, <laughs> then they mismanage it. And the poor are the marginalized who get it the worst. They get the brunt of this. And so in the Bible, there's a different way that this thing is managed. And in Leviticus 19, we read about the idea of gleaning of the harvest. And now, obviously, we don't live in a, a largely agricultural society. And we also don't live in the middle of, of Israel. And so there's a sense in which somebody hearing me talking about gleaning is going to you know, tune out immediately and think, what does that have to do with me as I'm wearing my mask into the Walmart? Right, right, but, right. Right. But let me say this, and, and we can actually get to that, how would it apply today? But I don't know if a lot of people know that there is an entire book of the Bible, and I'm not talking about Leviticus, that's about welfare. That's the book of Ruth. Mm. Ruth and it is a Moabitess, and how she encounters Naomi is that Naomi and her husband moved to Moab for the reasons that they moved to Moab and their sons marry two Moabite women. Naomi's husband dies and the two women's, their husband dies as well. And so Naomi says, this isn't working. You know, I'm going to go back to where I came from. And you know, the story, the two women start off with her and she basically says, go back home. You know, not a really good move on Naomi's part, but she says, go back home. One of them goes back home, but one sticks with her, and that, of course, is Ruth. So now, when they get back, obviously, there's some place that Naomi goes to live. We don't know exactly where it is, but she and Ruth are there together. And what's the first thing she tells Ruth to do? Go sign up for welfare? No. She <laughs> says, you can go glean in the fields. And so Ruth goes out and gleans. And apparently it's not all that easy a task. It's a tiring task. And when Boaz comes on the scene, Boaz recognizes her industry and then basically says, you just stay here because it could be dangerous for a single unprotected woman to go out and do this. Right. right. 
So what does Ruth do? She goes out and gleans and she gets enough to at least subsist, she and her mother-in-law. And then as it turns out, because of the family as a welfare agency, Naomi says, oh, Boaz is related to us. Families have responsibility to care for their own. And then we have Boaz as the kinsman redeemer, very much like Christ coming in and being our kinsman redeemer. And that you have now people being brought into the family of God through Christ the same way Ruth is brought into the family of Boaz. And if you know your Bible lineage, you know from Ruth and Boaz, you go a couple of generations and now you have David. And of course, Jesus Christ himself comes from the line of David. So this is biblical welfare, providing for people by giving them opportunity to work. So can you imagine if the farmers who had the extra eggs and had the extra milk had people come and bottle their milk and take it home with them, you know, what would that be like? That's right. And this is interesting too, because it exposes that our culture does not have a sense in which charity is associated with work, but rather that charity is associated with entitlement. Neither neither Ruth nor Naomi had this idea that the government owed them anything, but they were going to glean. And you said that gleaning was hard work, and it's true, because the person who comes through first picking is going to get all the low-hanging fruit, all the stuff that's easy to reach, all the stuff that's readily available, all of it's grouped together. And the gleaner, (laughs) when she comes through, has to get all the stuff that's harder to dig out or harder to pick or further away or didn't look as pretty. The gleaner, though, still has to go and do work. And so gleaning, even though it's a form of charity, it follows this biblical model that we see all the way into St. Paul, who says, you don't work, you don't eat. Now, who here uh, in our day and age wants to attach this principle of labor along with welfare? No, our government officials instead attach entitlement with these programs, that we deserve it because we're taxpayers. We deserve it because we're Americans. And in fact, we get upset when the strangers among us, at least here in California, were given some type of stipend uh, as the, the governor had promised with or illegal immigrants. But the, the part here that I think is really missing is our idea of charity has been misconstrued into keeping the poor perpetually poor rather than recognizing that everybody in God's kingdom has the opportunity to work their way up some type of ladder. and We have that responsibility to use the family to bring them in there. But Andrea, I have a, a joke for you. Okay. Do you know, do you know what um, Boaz was before he got married? No. He was ruthless. Oh dear. Okay. That was, that was okay. I guess I gotta let you have that one. But let me just point out something that I was going to say prior to that joke is that (laughs) gleaning, we've just described that the poor or those who need should work. But the other side of that coin was that if you are a producer, if you have resources, that you're not supposed to use them all up for yourself and be so incredibly greedy that you, you take everything you can 
off your field or off your tree. It's expected that you're going to leave some because mm -hmm. you know that in the law of God, the provision there, the provision is that someone's going to come behind and do it. So it's two sided. And again, what did Boaz do? He saw Ruth and he valued that she was taking care of Naomi and she came to him asking for the protection and covering. And just like Christ does for us, he responded with doing so. And she could have done a lot of other things. I mean, Ruth could have sold her body and, or she could have, you know, found a sugar daddy and just said, Hey, wouldn't you like a young, beautiful woman? But no, she went to work. And so the same way when we follow God's law, he favors us the same way Ruth's kinsman redeemer favored her. Christ favors us. That's right. And this is exactly what the law did. You said it cuts both ways. It prohibited greed on the sense of the landover. It, it, in one sense, you could say it placed a burden on him. You know, if it was a short year, he knew that he couldn't take everything because the law commanded him to not harvest everything. But what it really recognized or what it pointed to for the people is that the land that they were harvesting wasn't really theirs to begin with. And this was especially true in the ancient Israel land, right? So when the land is divided between the 12 tribes and, uh, well, between the 11 tribes, because the Levites didn't get any land. But when the, the laws were going in with gleaning, gleaning was a seasonal thing where you could only pick and harvest, you know, all but what needed to be gleaned. But then there was also a sense, and we've talked about this with Jubilee, that eventually you're not going to have this land either, that this is going to be returned back and all the debts, all the things are going to remind his people that the earth that we are in is not ours, but we are rather steward for the people of Israel was not so much to hoard what was inside the boundaries of the land, but rather that they might go beyond the boundaries. Because this type of gleaning or harvesting or production mentality meant that the, the Israelite who was most productive, who went outside of his land, who bought into the Canaanite land, who went as far south as Egypt, who expanded the kingdom beyond the original boundaries, then they would have something to show for that. Uh, you can see this really come into play throughout Christendom and especially during the Protestant era where you know, mercantilism and uh, the commercialism of the Protestant work ethic becomes an aspect of who we are. But God's covenant always encourages us not to be people of scarcity, of greed, of shoring up in limited quantities, but rather that he blesses those who go beyond uh, just what we personally need. Right. And aside from gleaning, there was also the provision of the poor tithe. And the poor tithe, if you remember, we've talked about Sabbath before, that Israel lived and existed on a seven-year cycle. So years one through six were production years, and year seven was where the land was given a Sabbath. What did that mean? That meant that in the sixth year, people had to have enough provision to get them through year seven 
and all the way through harvest of year number one. So that meant people had to be providential. They would be able to store things up. Think of it in our terms as building up savings so that you were in a position to survive it. Something that we've talked about is obviously not the case with most people around the world because they're feeling this pinch of not having an income. But on top of that, every third year of the cycle and every sixth year of the cycle, there was a provision for the genuine poor, those people who were elderly, disabled, or sick, who could not provide for themselves. So a portion of every healthy person's income or everyone's income, was to go to this poor tithe, and the Levites were to distribute it and and make it so that this was a very personal thing. Well, modern welfareism is not personal, because when you go and pick up your welfare check or whatever it is, the person who's giving it or distributing it, they're not distributing their own money. They're distributing money that was confiscated from other people. How much better if it was a face-to-face accountability. That's right. And it doesn't actually encourage more production. You know, the, the American system today, we have taxes that are called sin taxes, right? So a sin tax, for example, in California, is there's like a buck and a half tax on a pack of cigarettes, right? So this is supposed to discourage people from smoking. Or there's taxes on, on you know, sugary drinks to discourage people from doing that. The... Sin taxes, the additional cost discourages the behavior. And when I worked in the state capital, we'd always joke that income taxes do the same thing, right? If you put an income tax on somebody's job, then they're going to work less because they want to pay less taxes. But welfare does the same thing as well. When we connect the taxation or the the consumption of the good to the welfare, there's not a motivation to create more wealth. What the, the principles of the poor tithe and the gleaning and all of this, what this did in the scripture is it encouraged people to produce more. For example, if you were a farmer and you knew that if you grew 10 acres, nine and a half is all you'll be able to, to harvest because you had to leave half an acre for the gleaners. Well, then maybe if you needed to sell 10 acres, you'd plant 11 or plant 12. And so God's principle created more than less. Whereas today, as you're describing with the, the non-personal part of welfare, what welfare does is it consumes that that's already limited rather than encouraging people to produce more. So if there's any reset that we should be looking at right now, because a lot of people are justifiably upset, but they don't really have a solution on how do we prevent this encroachment. And this encroachment is not just in terms of income, it's in terms of education, it's in terms of medicine and healthcare. So there won't be uh, an arena where you won't see encroachment because people who are power-driven for the sake of power, as opposed to those who work for the kingdom of God, aren't going to stop. It'll never, it'll never be enough. But how are we going to change this? Well, we already know what it's like to sacrifice because a lot of us have in the past six weeks. But maybe we sacrifice more. And by that, I mean, we make sure we tithe. 
all three of the tides. And if you don't know what that means, look it up because you can find it. The point being, we've got to start now and have a reset that says, yeah, okay, they keep trying to take from us. But if we are providing what God says we should provide by means of the tithe and by means of gleaning, then we can come to a point where we'll say, you guys can't take this anymore because we're providing it. So long as the church and the family have left the vacuum in there, the, the state will come in and say, oh, there's a need. Well, they're right. There's a need. In God's economy, they're not the one to supply the answer. That's right. And moving forward as a, as a Christian people, uh, it's possible that our, our social order is going to fall back into a localism that we can only see in the scripture. You see, what, what happened in the progression of God's people in the Old Testament is as the tribes would grow, as they would go from garden to city, they would accumulate wealth. Um, but as we see in the principle of the Jubilee, those things would kind of restart. We see that same cycle happening here, except instead of having a home to come back to, instead of going out, going to the city, going bust, uh, and then returning back home, our people are so detached from any type of local roots, there is no one else for them to go to but the state. And so when, when Andrea talks about uh, tithing charity, the importance is that we are building local organizations, churches and families and schools that have the structure and the support so that the tribes can come home. This is really one of the great principles that we see in the charity of God is that when the people of Israel had a individual who fell on their luck, they could come back to their tribe. They can come back to their people. They can glean and they could restart. An individual or a young man today, if they go off to the city and they fail, who's going to be there to pick up the pieces? Well, traditionally in Christianity, we understood the Old Testament principles here of, of charity to be the responsibility of the church, to lift up the foreigner, to lift up the struggling, to lift up the poor. And the constraints and the laws around that protected those who gave the charity from being abused. Right. So, for example, the idea of somebody working to earn their charity made that person prove that they were worth helping. What opportunities do we have in our churches, in our schools, in our businesses that we can give people new opportunities to serve and to grow into restarting their lives? Now, uh, my friend John Stuss, who's written for Calcedon many years ago, uh, would talk about all of the, the African-Americans in his neighborhood. And he would talk about how minimum wage laws had priced this, quote, unskilled labor out of work. And they had this terrible unemployment rate in his part of Sacramento because nobody would hire them for the minimum wage cost. But that if he had a, a grocery store and he could pay them such and such dollars to sweep his, you know, sweep his store, stock his shelves, that he could give them opportunities. The same thing is true for you and your families, your churches, your schools, the difference is we don't need the permission of the government and their charity to begin building a Christian civilization around the principles of godly charity and work. And it's a whole system. That's why it's not true charity if it's not based on the law of God. And that means that both the giver 
and the recipient have to be faithful in the particular roles. Now, modern day gleaning, you could say, are groups like the Salvation Army or Goodwill, where people take their things that they no longer use and they donate them so other people could either have jobs to fix them and get them ready for sale or go in and buy them at a reduced amount. But I think the mindset should be also that we're not become super consumers, that we have to have, you know, 25 pairs of shoes and we have to have, you know, uh, 30 outfits so that we can decide what we're going to do, that we take part of our income and we start setting it aside to be available to help the poor, to be available there and that it becomes a personal thing. I think if churches with the many deaconate funds that they had or have make it a, a, a rule that they're going to distribute these deaconate funds among the people who come to their church, there may be some people who come to the church to receive it, but praise God, they get instructed in the faith in the process. That's part of how the Salvation Army made their exchange with people who were getting the benefit. They sat through a service, they heard the word of God, and then they were given something to eat. And I know Dr. Rushduni in his book, In His Service, the subtitle is A Christian Call to Charity, spends a number of chapters on William Booth of the Salvation Army because he really appreciated that model. That's right. And I think one of the quotes from there is he quotes William Booth as saying that the church cannot be a hospital. And that's really how much of the social systems work in our days. We're trying to solve other people's problems as if they're broken. And the problem is that the system of charity is not about giving band-aids to people, solving their problems for them, but the law of God is about empowering individuals to become part of who God made them to be. Uh, this is not really about creating an agricultural society or returning back to a, a Jewish commonwealth where that's part of our economy, but rather looking at the principles here and saying, how is it, how is it that these Hebrew people understanding this principle were able to build such great cultures? The foundation of all of Western civilization comes back down to the codes here put together by Moses. So if we want to experience true wealth, true prosperity, really care for the sick and the poor among us, we need to go back to see how did God imagine this working? And of course, we can see this even in the words of Christ. We talked about the poor always being with you. But even in the parables of Christ, we see God's principles coming to bear, whether it's the parable of the talents, where God says, whatever you're given, invest it. You know, whatever you're given, whatever small talent you have, put it to work for the kingdom. Don't sit on it. Or the cautionary tale of the prodigal son. Now, there's a spiritual element to that, of course, related to salvation, but there's also an economic reality there. How many of us are entrusting the future of the next generation to the squandering of city life, right? How many of us are waiting for our children to come back to us and be rescued instead of preparing them now to take dominion. There's a, a true inheritance in the law of God 
uh, a true preparation for the poor that can protect this generation and the next from humanism should we put our hand to the plow. Exactly. Well, so I think the answer to the question, what will happen to the poor or what will happen for the poor if government doesn't distribute welfare, they'll be less poor. <laughs> and it's true. The, the reality is there are less people involved in the production of our food, of our materials. It costs less to do it today. And yet why are there more people poor? It's because we put more and more trust into God's enemies than into God's solutions. Christians need to have confidence that if they're faithful to God's calling in every area of life, that that will be the place of blessings. Too often we operate in this kind of fear mentality that if we don't create a government safety net, people will get left out when the exact opposite is true. If we don't invest in our churches, in our families, in our spouse, in our children, that's going to be the demise of the poor. It's not happening with government bonds. It's happening with our tithe and dominion. And we have to be prepared for a while anyway to pay double. And what do I mean by that? Well, any homeschool family already knows what I'm talking about or those who send their children to a Christian school. Your property taxes already go to fund the public school. And a lot of people won't invest in what it takes to homeschool or send their children to a Christian school because they'll say, I could send my kids to the public school for free. Well, first of all, it's not really free, but let's even pretend we want to look at it that way. It's certainly not godly. So that means the people of God have to live in such a way that even though portions of their resources are being taken from them to fund things they disagree with, they still have to allocate for the things God requires them to do. And I don't think until such time as people do that, are we going to see a change because too many believers are willing to obey God as long as it's not inconvenient or painful. And that's never been the requirement to obey God. That's right. Well, thank you everybody for listening. If you'd like to contact us with comments or questions or um, suggestions for future episodes, Contact us at out of the question podcast at gmail.com. And God bless you until we meet again. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.